0: This podcast is brought to you by Recontract, the leading software to automate your reconditioning process. From vehicles to people to parts, Recontract streamlines every touch point in your recon process. Visit recontractcom AN to learn more. That's R-E-C-O-N-T-R-A-C dot com AN.
1: Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker, today on the show,
2: S&P cuts Nissan's credit rating to junk. The founders of defunct Argo AI launch a new self-driving startup, and Rivian looks to shore up capital with a big bond sale. Plus, we're we'll here from Gene Bertashewski, CEO of the battery tech startup Scylla, which developed its technology
3: to improve range with mass production in mind from the start. Those constraints meant that as we evolved through those 55,000 iterations, we weren't just making something that worked, we're making something that worked and would scale.
2: Let's run through all the news you need
1: to know to keep up in the auto industry. S&P Global Ratings is slashing Nissan's credit rating to junk status. It's a blow for an automaker that has struggled to boost profitability in the years following former chairman Carlos Ghosn's arrest and the industry's pivot toward electrification. The automaker's credit rating was cut by one notch to double B plus by S&P, which said a strong recovery in profit and sales was, quote, unlikely. A junk rating means Nissan will have to pay higher costs to sell foreign currency bonds abroad. While Nissan recovered from two years of losses and still targets operating profit of $2.7 billion for the fiscal year ending this month, it's had a dearth of new car models to appeal to buyers. S&P said it expects Nissan's profitability will continue to lag behind its competitors for the next one to two years. The founders of
2: Argo AI are launching a new self-driving business that could specialize in trucking and ride hailing. That's according to people familiar with the matter who spoke with Bloomberg. Argo shut down last year after Ford and Volkswagen pulled the plug on the automated driving startup, which had more than 2,000 employees worldwide. Sources say the new venture by Brian Selesky and Pete Rander has backing from a company that approached them about starting a full scale AV firm. The identity of the backer wasn't immediately clear, but sources say it's not an automaker. The startup will be based in Pittsburgh, which was home to Argo and is also the headquarters city for Ford's new advanced driver assistance system subsidiary,
1: Latitude AI. Rivian plans to sell bonds worth. billion as manufacturing challenges and lofty costs tighten a cash crunch around electric vehicle makers. Rivian said in a statement that initial investors will get an option to buy an additional $200 million of the bonds for settlement 13 days after they're issued. A Rivian spokesperson told Reuters that the capital from this offering will help facilitate the launch of Rivian's smaller R2 vehicle family. Rivian has said its cash balance will fund its operations through 2025. It reported cash and cash equivalents of about $12 billion at the end of December, down from $13.3 billion a quarter earlier. In an effort to cut costs, the company last month laid off 6% of its workforce. As of Tuesday afternoon, Rivian stock was down more than 11% to $15.17 a share.
2: And the race for UAW president now hangs on about 1,600 challenged ballots. UAW President Ray Curry is narrowly trailing reform candidate Sean Fain in his bid for re-election after most votes have been counted. Fain leads Curry by 645 votes in the runoff election. That's according to the federally appointed monitor overseeing the voting process. The race will determine who will lead the union through high-stakes contract negotiations with the Detroit Three this fall. Already, six reform-minded challengers have won leadership spots on the union's 14-member International Executive Board. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Nissan's global ratings slashed to junk status. What does this mean for
1: Nissan? You know, it's it's not good. It may not be as bad as, a, as it could seem. You know, junk is sometimes a pejorative term. I certainly remember when Ford and GM were first cut to junk status, uh, you know, sort of the sense it was almost 20 years ago, like, well, this is bad. It's going to raise their borrowing costs, but they probably have plenty of uh, runway and aren't necessarily going to uh, run out of money. But we saw what happened, right? A, a few years later, of you know, Ford borrowed against every asset they own, including the blue oval logo. They had enough money to get them through the global financial crisis. GM did not and had to go into bankruptcy and restructure with the support of the federal government, as did Chrysler. So, you know, when it goes to junk, it is not a good sign. That said, this company is not in the same situation as General Motors was, you know, 20 years ago. We're talking about a company that's still making money, making billions. You know, when this industry goes bad, companies lose money in the multiple billions and they lose cash in a really rapid state. That's not the case with Nissan, but they are behind the curve and uh, S&P's worried about it. Coming up, we'll hear from SELA CEO, Gene Berdashevsky,
2: about the battery startup's technology, which replaces graphite with a silicon anode material to extend range and make mass production easier. That's next on Daily Drive.
0: Across the Hendrick Automotive Group, each store had a different reconditioning process. They started looking for a solution that would help them standardize their processes, give them actionable information, and ultimately drive efficiency. Knowing they needed to bring together all pieces of their operation to cut cycle times down to their goal of three days, they chose ReconTrack. Chris Little, Vice President of Variable Operations, explains why having the tools to measure your recon process gives you what you need to manage it more effectively.
2: Everyone knows speed uh, to the front line uh, equates to more turns, which helps the overall company do better in terms of parts service and inventory bias. And so, uh, when you can really take the time to measure and manage that uh, and perfect that, uh, you're going to increase your turns, you're going to increase your gross profit, and you're really just going to increase the amount of used cars you can sell uh, because you're getting them out on the front line quicker.
1: Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. There are all sorts of battery tech startups hoping to extend range, drive down costs, and revolutionize the way vehicles use energy. But how many of those new technologies can actually scale to provide power to millions of new vehicles each year? Instead of trying to answer that question after developing its technology, Bay Area startup Sela began there. Our own Pete Bigelow recently spoke with SELA co-founder Gene Berdyshevsky on Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of their conversation.
4: Kick this off a little bit by uh, telling us about SELA. What is it that differentiates you from some of the other battery startups out there?
3: Sure. We're a next-generation battery technology company. Uh, We currently make uh, the world's best uh, silicon-based anode which replaces the graphite anode in lithium-ion batteries. Graphite anode's been the standard for 32 years now. And when you replace the graphite with our technology, you can get a 20 to 40% increase in energy density, which can translate to longer range. Uh, You can also get dramatically faster recharge times. Uh, We can deliver for customers 15 minutes, even, even less in the future. And uh, maybe maybe just as importantly, you can localize your supply chain. We can produce this anywhere in the world. And and we're building our first uh, large scale manufacturing plant in, uh, in North America here in Washington state. So a lot of advantages with the next generation technology. And the thing that probably differentiates us the most is we're the only next generation battery tech that ships commercially today. So we're in a, a consumer device called the Whoop. A lot of units out there for 18 months now, no issues. I think we're also the only ones who've announced a, a supply agreement with an automaker, uh, and that's with Mercedes, who will be bringing our technology starting with their with their G wagon.
4: Thinking like fundamentally, then you're not focused on moving on to some new dynamic chemistry that's different than lithium ion. You're you're more so saying, how do you make lithium ion better, and and that's through taking out the graphite.
3: Yeah, and and you know, Pete, that's really the only. Meaningful, impactful thing we can do this decade. So, folks are building lithium-ion factories at a breakneck pace. We've got you know millions of electric vehicles worth of fa- of those factories already built. By the end of the decade, there'll probably be thirty million cars worth of lithium-ion factories. And so, if your technology isn't one hundred percent compatible with those factories, you're talking about rebuilding, you know, tens of millions of electric cars worth of battery factories. And so chemistries like ours, technologies like ours that drop seamlessly into those gigafactories aren't sort of just nice to have. They're an absolute requirement if you actually want to have an impact on electrification this decade. And so that's what we do. Now, it's still, look, it's fundamentally a completely different chemistry. Graphite is an intercalation-based material. Silicon is a conversion-based material. It's really hard to make this work. People worked at this for 15 years, and we're you know the only ones who can fully replace graphite today in the market. So it's it, it is a revolution. It's just a revolution in parts. You can imagine in the future uh, replacing the cathode with something more fundamental as well. You can imagine upgrading the separator technology. You know, so uh, we think of it as a revolution in parts.
4: What was the secret sauce over those years that enabled you to to eliminate the graphite and move to the silk that that was so vexing for others perhaps
3: you know it's not any one thing ideas are are cheap, ideas are a dime a dozen um, execution is what really separates um, those that ship from those that don't and for us what that what that looked like was iterating tens of thousands of times we we iterated something like fifty-five thousand times on the synthesis of this material that we create and a lot of that was had to do with building the systems that are able to repeatably and extremely accurately measure and test very small quantities of next generation materials because you can't produce this stuff in large volume to start and so we literally went through 55,000 iterations before we nailed it and we're now getting closer to 100,000 iterations as we continue to improve it. Um, and our R&D labs run 24/7 to to synthesize new variants every single day. So that's a piece of it and of course, you know, another piece is having really brilliant scientists and engineers that are then putting really creative ideas into that into that system into that R&D engine if you will. So you really need both and and one is not enough.
4: You alluded to this a little bit before but it's one thing to have a, a great idea or even one thing to have a breakthrough technology, but to uh, be able to manufacture it at scale is is another essential part of of that breakthrough
3: that's right. and And you can't just go figure out a cool technology and then say, You know what? Now we'll make it manufacturable. It doesn't work that way. I think a lot of a lot of folks also get this wrong. So we did three things very, very early on in our company's life. We constrained our technology that we would work on to be 100% compatible with downstream gigafactories. So we did this in 2011 when there wasn't a single gigafactory in the world. We were sort of just shipping the, you know, the Roadster was the only electric car out there at the time. But our our view was that by the time our technology was ready, there would be many, many gigafactories. And and we were right. And so having to be 100% compatible with downstream equipment is a big part of it. That's kind of our customers manufacturing process. With respect to our own manufacturing process, we set out two other constraints. One is that we told our scientists they could only use global commodity precursors. We did the math. And if you want all cars to be electric in the future, and I do, you need about a million tons per year of this kind of silicon technology. And so you have to ask the question when you first put any kind of molecule into your reactor, what scale is this molecule produced in in the world today? Because if it's a tiny quantity, even if you get the tech to work, you'll never have the supply chain to do things right. And so so that was a key constraint for our scientists, which makes it harder. And then the last thing we did was we, we constrained our scientists and engineers to use only bulk manufacturing techniques, meaning big volumetric reactors. Think fermenters, right? Think furnaces, think sort of things that are where the output scales in proportion to volume. And and that's in contrast to planar manufacturing technologies where the output scales in proportion to the area, right? So semiconductors are planar, solar cells are planar, display glass, all those things are planar. None of those technologies, planar manufacturing technologies are scalable enough for the needs of, of electric vehicles. And so those are sort of getting a little bit in the weeds here for your listeners, but those constraints, meant that as we evolved through those 55,000 iterations, we weren't just making something that worked. We are making something that worked and would scale. As a child, you grew up in the Ukraine. Where did you grow up? And when
4: did you immigrate to the United States?
3: Yeah, so so I was born in Sevastopol, uh, which is in Crimea. And I split time between Ukraine and and Russia and St. Petersburg. Uh, My family came to the States when I was nine. So i was still relatively young and and um really kind of got immersed in the culture here and you know i grew up in, in in virginia through high school before coming out to california which which certainly formed a lot of who i am and um how i'm driven and how i'm wired and you know i think a lot of kind of our work today around energy you know is not going to have a Impact on today's conflict that that exists there, but I think creating sort of this energy in, independence for for really every region. I mean, every region deserves its own energy independence. Whether you know Europe, China, the U.S. countries should not be reliant on each other for the most fundamental thing you need for society to function. And I think if we can if we can sort of decouple you know the production of energy to renewables, the use of energy through you know electric vehicles. We can create a a world that that has less of this energy interdependence, which which can can lead to conflicts like what we're seeing in uh, Russia Ukraine right now. It does seem
4: like this. If there's anything that the conflict has brought home, it's exactly that that, or, or one of many key things, I guess, is that the next generation energy supply is is foundational to to everything.
3: That's right. I mean, you think about the U.S. in the 20th century. And you know, 70s we were we were energy dependent. Uh, it was a really bad place to be. Think about you know how many wars we've fought as you know, whether explicitly or implicitly because of energy. We spent a hundred years you know or 50 years catching up and getting to a place where you know with technologies like fracking and you know and uh, exploiting our own resources at home we could get that energy dependence and 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 you know frankly be involved in less conflict. But the 21st century is going to have an entirely different. Uh, energy look and feel and and the question is are we you know in the US going to spend you know the first 50 years falling behind and then try like crazy to catch up again or are we just going to do it right the first time i think we're heading on the better track but it you know not this is not preordained and and it's going to take a lot of work for for us to get energy independent in the 21st century which means renewables production which means battery production which means electric vehicle production fortunately we are the most innovative place in the world people talk about china leading the way on evs but they forget we gave the world tesla we started this all, and we're going to bring the next generation of battery technology here and we're going to produce enough here and you know we we invented most of the things in solar so i i think you know we need to to double down on on domestic manufacturing but we don't have an innovation problem. We're going to lead on innovation, so we just need to make sure that innovation couples into domestic manufacturing through the right government policies, through you know entrepreneurs that want to build the right way, through you know states that want these jobs, and through training programs that kind of reestablish our manufacturing prowess here. It's all very, very doable. It just takes willpower.
1: Gene Berdushevsky is CEO of the Bay Area battery tech startup, SELA. You can hear his full conversation with our own Pete Bigelow on the latest episode of Shift, a podcast about mobility, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Callan Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer, Jake
2: Neer, as well as our own Michael Martinez for their help on today's podcast you can get the latest news on tech and innovation, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry
1: at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a look at the complicated and costly problem of installing electric vehicle charging stations at dealerships. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.